Uh, each uh, time at Palestine Deep Dive, we take a look at some of the issues around the Middle East and taking a deeper look around many of the topics that are actually in the news and not being covered by the mainstream media. Uh, we look at what's making the news and what isn't. And also, we're very, very keen to hear from all of you. So please uh, do get ready to send in your questions. Do let us know where you're sending your questions in from and who you are, uh, because we've got a very special guest tonight. We are joined from Johannesburg by Ronnie Casrills. Uh, we've been so looking forward to having Ronnie. Uh, now, of course, many of you will know um, much about Ronnie, but for those who don't, um, Ronnie was a member of the National Executive of the, of the African National Congress, the ANC. He was a founding member of Umkonto Wesizwe and served as South Africa's Minister for Intelligence Services between 2004 and 2008. For nearly 20 years, he was a member of the National Executive of the South African Communist Party. But I think it's fair to say that Ronnie's probably packed several lives into one. And I wish we could be just talking about Ronnie today uh, in many respects, because it's been such a fascinating uh, life that he has led. Uh, but uh, he has uh, championed forests, he's championed waterways, he's an author, he's a writer, and tonight, of course, he's with us as a broadcaster too. So welcome, Ronnie, from Johannesburg. We're absolutely delighted to have to have you. Um, and we're going to be looking at a range of issues, but, but beginning, if I may, um, and it's I, I, obviously, I, I've, I've known about you, I've read about you, I've spoken to, to people about you, but, I, but I, I was interested to, to learn more of your own history. Um, and I know you're, you're one of these guys who doesn't want to talk about himself. And it's often the people who are the most interesting who don't tend to want to talk about themselves, in my experience. But I did want to ask you about uh, your grandparents um, and whether you knew them, um, they they fled Tsarist pogroms in Latvia and Lithuania to come to South Africa. And I wanted to know, did you did you get to know them? Did you get to hear their story? What was it that took them away to South Africa of all countries as well? Okay, well, first of all, Mark, thanks so much for having me and good evening to your viewers. Um, let me just say, by the way, that my enemies say all I want to do is talk about myself. So th thanks for actually indicating that actually I'm more interested in substantive matters. But, you know, the life of an individual is fused with, especially when we're talking about epic political struggles of liberation, with that. I owe everything to the liberation movement of South Africa and the international movement for actually forging me, shaping me as the, as the person I am. Um, I, um, in fact, of course, you're correct about my ancestry. The East European Jews who came to South Africa towards the end of the 19th century into that turn into the 20th um, were very similar to the Jewish immigrants into the so-called new world to get away from pogroms and impoverishment uh, and, and go west. Britain, Ireland had their share of this, perhaps even a bit earlier on. Um, the United States, of course, had the major uh, amount of those immigrants, as it did from 
all of Europe, Italy, everywhere else. But there, there was quite an offshoot coming into South Africa, um, mid-19th to late 19th century. And my paternal grandfather, who I never met, was the guy who they said was something of a socialist. And he came to South Africa around about 1880 um, to work on the diamond fields of, uh, of Kimberley. Um, died the year I was born, and I was born in 1938. Quite an important year in shaping me, because it meant I grew up during the Second World War, Nazism, fascism, anti-Semitism, and so on. Um, but I did meet his wife, who was an absolute frightening woman, <laughs> who was very old when I met her and was so irascible. Um, she obviously, the poor thing, was suffering from illnesses and she didn't want children near her. But I had on the mother's side the most delightful grandparents maternal. The grandmother, who was very beautiful and very kind and quiet, uh, influenced me quite a bit, but she died when I was um, eight years old, and I loved her. She was a, a, a very inward person, though. Her husband, A.B. Cohen, was the ebullient, outgoing character who was the popular guy in the equivalent of Brooklyn, New York, which was Yeovil, Johannesburg, where I grew up, and he was loved. They weren't political. He was something of a hedonist. But my father, who was a very quiet, reserved guy, was worked for a factory as a salesman and was always talking about workers' struggles. And white workers, like they were, tended to be chauvinistic. Uh, and they were part of the, not my father, but this inflow from Eastern Europe, were creators of the Communist Party of South Africa in 1921, together with British trade unionists. Um, but my, my father somehow had within him an, a socialist morality, and he would talk about workers' rights and the bosses, and unlike a lot of the other very Jewish white commercial travelers like him who were rather anarchistic. He wasn't racist, they were. And if they talked socialism, it was for a white South Africa. My father had a fairer approach. My mother was the main influence on me. She was not uh, a person who, who even went to our matric level here, your kind of O levels. She had to go out and work at the age of 16, basically a shop assistant. So my parents were working class. Um, and she was just an incredibly kind-hearted person. And when, in my angst, as a young kid growing up during the world, Second World War, and finding ourselves in the local bioscopes, as we called them, children's matinees, but, you know, putting on the movie, the cinema forgot to censor or keep out movie tone news, path pictorial, which showed us 
Side by side with Tom and Jerry in Three Stooges cartoons and comedies, we suddenly saw Herr Adolf in the concentration camps and so on. And we used to scream in terror. And I, I talked to my mother in two ways. I better cut this short, but very quickly about the way blacks were being treated, because you could see it in front of your eyes. Look, wherever, if you're living in close proximity to black African-Americans or in Britain or indeed in Israel, near Palestinians, you can see how they treated. But white South Africa, like Israeli Jews or white supremacists, they, they don't even notice that. I did. And I would say to my mother, is this how the Jews were taught? We're being treated in Nazi Germany. And this woman, without the education, she would just look at me and I could see her thinking and she would say, well, you know, Ronald, it hasn't got to the point where people were kept in death camps and ended up in gas chambers. And I know you know that, you know, we, I was at Bioscope sometimes with her and she used to push me under the seat so I couldn't see Adolf and company in the camps. Uh, you know, this is 45, 46, mm. when this was being viewed in the cinemas. And uh, she said, it's not to that degree, but the man, that black man you saw being beaten in the street the other day when we came out of the cinema by white thugs and the way people swear at black people, that's the beginning. That's when it all starts. And that is, was the big turning point in my life as a kid of, say, eight years going nine. No, I mean, that's fascinating, Ronnie. I mean... I suppose people would say, you know, uh, did, did, did your family, did Jewish people in South Africa who had left the, uh, Eastern Europe, did they face discrimination uh, themselves? Was there anti-Semitism in South Africa at that stage? And of course, when I was also thinking as you were talking about your mother and saying, well, it hasn't got as bad as that uh, yet. Um, many of the critics of British um, colonialism would, say, would often say, well, it was actually the British who started having these concentration camps, first of all, in South, <laughs> African, with the, South Africa with the Afrikaners, the Boers. Uh, absolutely. Um, and remember, the Germans also had those camps in Namibia, where they yeah. had a genocidal war. But yeah. um, sure, you, you know, in terms of the anti-Semitism, this was prevalent as it was in France and in Britain and, and in the United States. And as a kid going to the cinema, I remember 1948, you know, Israel independence, but you would hear these white supremacists and the racists in the cinema shouting out, let all the Jews get to Israel, that's where they belong, that kind of thing. Um, or I can remember, after the cinema, we stand by the old trams we used to have in Johannesburg, and you know everyone would be bustling to get on the tram for your particular uh, destination. And you'd get people shouting out, let the Jews on first, you know, in, in a real guttural way. And you would find something of this in the schools. We had British rule. And as you know, with British colonial rule and your own ruling class, from Boris Johnson, let Lady Hodge and others who attacked Jeremy Corbyn remember what Boris Johnson would write and what Balfour and Churchill, an incredible racist, Cable Street, we had that all here from British colonial rule. The Afrikaners, 
uh, in their their um, response to the, the the Brits and the Boer War, and so they hated them, and they moved in the direction of Germany, and they were, as, as people nationalists, as we know, right-wing nationalists from Ireland to India, uh, and the Mufti of Jerusalem, looked to then Nazi rule as a way of support against the British Empire. So there was that particular aspect, but there were real Nazis because of the yeah. racist aspect. So Dr. Favut yeah. and all of those guys, they went to Nazi Germany. That's where they studied psychology and ethnic uh, racism and so on. Well, I was, I was going to say up until fairly recently in uh, Luderitz and some of these other places in uh, Namibia, that <laughs> birthday was still being celebrated. I remember years ago going to, si going to Simon's Town and walking into yeah. a shop and they were selling swastikas and all sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but what's, what's quite interesting is that um, obviously the, uh, the, the system of, of apartheid, you referred there to, uh, to Dr. Volwart and they were called uh, Milan and all of these other guys who actually instituted apartheid. It was a different form of institutionalized racism to the uh, traditional British colonialism in, in Rhodesia and what have you. Um, but did, when did the rest of the world really appreciate, do you think, what was happening in South Africa and what apartheid was? Because you were radicalized uh, by Sharpeville. Do you think Sharpeville was that crucial moment of, of realization in the rest of the world, that there was a really deeply pernicious system um, in yeah. South Africa? Well, we, we've got to separate um, the sheep from the goats. So the, the satanic goats <laughs> were the, 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 the governments uh, from France to Britain to the United States. The people of those countries uh, were the ones who saw in the Shafal massacre what was taking place in South Africa. And it aroused the anti-apartheid movement and the boycott movement of South Africa. And that's what we built on and had enormous support from uh, India to Africa and so on, uh, but from Europe to the, to, to the Americas. Um, and, and that took off from Britain. Uh, the ANC using Julius Nyerere, Kenneth Kaunda, and some of our people already in exile, 1959, before Sharpeville, and then from Sharpeville, um, spoke to the Liberal Party, Labour Party. They tried to talk to the Conservatives, to the students, to the communities, and that's when the boycott movement began. And Julius Nyerere famously said to a gathering at Westminster Hall, um, across the road from Parliament there. Uh, he appealed to the British people to begin to, to boycott South African grapes and wines and oranges and so on. And it got going that way. Later, much later, look how long it took for Margaret Thatcher to stop referring to Mandela as a terrorist, yes. almost to 1990 yeah. when he was freed. Reagan, you know, was calling him a terrorist. Yeah. Um, well, actually, so that, Ronnie, as, as you're saying this, I mean, you, I remember Thatcher, the, the, the Commonwealth, and she said this much, the rest of the Commonwealth demanding sanctions. But going back to exactly. the earlier days and, and the connection with the international movements, I mean, for, for what it's worth, I edited uh, Tribune for many years. And Great stuff. Was, Great was stuff. Out there, 
Um, yes. and Albert Sulu had a column in Tribune. Um, Julius Nereri, you talked about him from Tanzania. Um, they all were, and, and so Tribune was one of the early voices in Britain for the anti-apartheid movement. And, uh, uh, you know, but it must have been incidents like that. And actually going back to you then, with your radicalization and your political activity, I mean, you soon found, I mean, they soon spotted you. You were soon noticed by the uh, powers that be. And I think at one stage you were put on a sort of five-year, uh, you were banned for five years from public speaking. I mean, how, how did it happen? We, how did they, how did they, you know, cop on to you, if you see what I mean? Yeah, no, sure. So, look, with Sharpeville, March 1960, immediately afterwards, the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress are banned. The Communist Party had been banned 10 years previously, but um, it, it impelled me to do something in terms of action. And there were ally organizations of the ANC that were unbanned in public. So there was an Indian Congress, there was a colored mixed race Congress and a trade union Congress. And there was a small organization drawing white Democrats into the movement by stages, not straight into the ANC. And that was the Congress of Democrats, L.B. Sachs, Ruth First, who had been banned in the Communist Party, those people like that. And young people like me, I'm talking about maybe two, three hundred people in the whole of South Africa, maybe 50 in Johannesburg, of which with Sharpville, they suddenly received an influx of another 15 young white people. I joined then, but within a year from the film uh, studio in Johannesburg, I talked about being poached by Unilever who were in Durban. Um, I went to work there and there were six members of the Congress of Democrats in Durban, all banned communists who had joined the Congress of Democrats and been banned again. So I was the one guy <laughs> who had joined them, a cousin of mine, by the way, whose grandparents had come from Lithuania as well, um, mm. was, was a member and they trusted me. And I suddenly had the task <laughs> as a young 22 year old, just, just beginning to break my teeth in politics, to speak on their behalf at trade union meetings and platforms or the meetings of this Indian Congress, which were big meetings. And ANC people would come to those together and they were generally workers and trade unionists. So I was speaking there. But within six months, I made a speech, which was a speech about the universal franchise. And for a 22, 23-year-old kid, suddenly in the newspapers the next few days, I see there's a speech in Parliament. They don't mention me by name, but they say they're, they're young firebrands from the white community who are agitating blacks with a dreadful slogan, one man, one vote. And within a few months, I was slapped with a ban, and I... Lever Brothers um, fired me and I couldn't do anything. I was banned from public mm -hmm. speaking or, or, or entering factories. So I, I, I then registered for, for, for a university degree. I lasted six months because then I'd become involved in the armed struggle. Uh, all the avenues having been blocked 
to peaceful change. That's why Mandela and company changed to Armstrong. And I was young and active and physical and an athlete. So I was brought in at the inception in 1961 of the armed wing of the ANC and was underground, but going to university within a year of sabotage activities, people were being arrested and I was being hunted for, people were breaking down in interrogation and I was on the run and I had to leave the country to join the ANC in exile. And that was 1963. So it's a very quick period of my life, basically from Sharpville, 1960, to having to go for military training as well and working for the ANC, three years of my life. And when I look back on it, that was a lifetime. It was an absolute lifetime. You talked about the many, many roles I've had and the many lives. That was a lifetime encapsulated in, in, in three years. Well, I mean, Ronnie, people don't often appreciate this, but both the ANC and the South African Communist Party were I mean, well ahead of the curve when it came to the fact that they were multiracial uh, entities. Um, and of course, one of the, the famous guys you got to work with over the years was Joe Slovo. And uh, oddly enough, as I was thinking about this interview, I, I was reminded of this book that um, my uncle, who was a member of the Conservative Association here, gave me. And of course, this turned me into a raging uh, anti-apartheid left winger. And you can see Joe yeah. Slovo was one of the authors of this uh, book, which you probably remember. I but the, indeed, the, yeah. the, the thing is, um, and, and the, the late Tony Benn would often say, uh, he said what of Archbishop Macarius, of uh, Nelson Mandela, all these people, they start off by being terrorists and then they become freedom fighters and then, then, they, then they sit down and have a cup of tea with the Queen. I don't think you've had a cup of tea with the Queen, Ronnie. Oh. I've been to a banquet with the Queen. Oh, you have. You I've have. Been, I've been on the Royal Yacht Britannica. Well, there you go. I take it all back. Off you see? Durban. And, you know, I went, 94, Mandela made me the Deputy Minister of Defence. Yeah. And the, the minister was my chief from the armed struggle days. But he became ill. And I had to stand in for him when Queenie and Philip came on a trip to South Africa. And the first event that I, I actually had to welcome them to was to the Commonwealth War Graves at Milnerton Cemetery in Cape Town. And um, I was there with my medals and in my suit, waiting for them. And I had army officers next to me who I had to introduce them to. And, and they arrived and that was it. The newspapers in the following day talked about what did Republican Ronnie have to say to the monarch <laughs> and her consort. <laughs> Within a week or so, they were with the, the, the royal yacht in Durban, and the, the minister, Modisi, couldn't attend that. So I attended, it was a, a regal event, and that event, they'd been smiling with me and Philip had been joking with me at the Milnerton Cemetery. They snubbed me <laughs> at that event because it's clear they had now read the files about me <laughs> and the newspaper reports about Red Republican Ronnie. <laughs> uh, well, Ronnie... I uh, now is actually the time, I think, to bring in one or two uh, folks from across the world. Uh, Boris uh, Kakas, he says, uh, D 
Dear Mr. Castrols, I'm sending regards from Slovakia in the EU. Uh, Dave Chappell has a question for you. Um, he says, we know how Israel provided much support to apartheid South Africa. Did Israel ever offer at any time to support the ANC? Or if not, what was its public attitude, attitude to you in practical and political terms? Yeah. Um, zilch, zero. <laughs> um, they, in the early days, around about 1960 and Sharpville, they did join the chorus <laughs> through, um, was that still Ben-Gurion? But anyway, you know, and, and they made a condemnation. But there was never any uh, support for the ANC. They did receive Arthur Goldreich, who was a member of MK and went to live in Israel when he fled South Africa, and a guy called Dennis Goldberg, who there was some assistance in getting him out of a, a, a life sentence in prison. But what they were doing all the time was actually in the most underhand way. Um, an alliance with Pretoria in which the two of these regimes cooperated in defense development, in uh, military hardware, and of course, most infamously, Israel assisted South Africa in the mid 19, late 1970s in developing the nuclear bomb. Um, so it was an axis of evil. Um, David Prum, who's uh, in the US, uh, uh, says, Ronnie, uh, South African apartheid has never seemed to me to be really analogous to the Palestinian situation. South African blacks greatly outnumbered white South Africans. Uh, the economic force of the boycott was much greater in South Africa than BDS against Israel today. Um, South Africans were economically motivated, but also simply terrified by possible annihilation uh, and so had to end apartheid. Do you think... Uh, this is his question, that the boycott and divestment can really work to help free the Palestinians, because I don't really see it happening, says David. Okay, well, thanks very much, David. But what, what I'd like to refer you to is the report by the human rights group Betselem, Break the Silence, which just in, in this last month has come out with this indictment against Israel and calling a spade a spade and saying Israel is an apartheid state and not only in Jimmy Carter's sense of the occupied territories, but Bet Salem has said it's from the Jordan to the sea and it's the occupied territories, it's Israel itself. I've just recently read looking for his name, Rabbi Brian Walt, who's a United States rabbi from South Africa. And he has come out in the States with such a brilliant, articulate explanation and comparison about apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel. And he said until... Some years ago, he didn't want to use that analogy, and he goes to Israel often and Palestine and draws the parallels and has commended Bet Salem. So 
the parallels are tremendous. There are differences. And, and is it David um, who points this out? Was it David? From, yes, David. Uh, yeah. um, of course, there's a difference in demographic. Uh, the, the indigenous African people in South Africa are almost 90%, sorry, 80% 80, 80 of the entire population. Um, nine, 10% whites, another 9% mixed race colors and about one to 2% Asian. Uh, we know that if you take the entire Holy Land, it's about 50-50 parity. If you include Palestinians in the refugee camps, then they outnumber Jewish Israelis, of course. But the main difference is that the apartheid regime and colonial first Netherlands or, or Holland and then Britain had to utilize black labor and exploit black labor and build the country on the basis of black labor because that's 80% of the population. Uh, whereas the, the Israeli or Zionist way Pre-1948, they were always talking about boycotting Palestinian products and Palestinian workers and, you know, saying we must do it for ourselves. Um, so in this, that sense, there's an even worse element of, of, of Israeli apartheid in totally keeping out, as it's not 100%, but keeping out Palestinian labor. And that's why the Gaza, two million people, is just a prison. And they, in the past, they would let out maybe 40,000 or so uh, similar numbers from the occupied territory of the West Bank. In, in relation to BDS, it's the, it's the weapon. It's the weapon for the international community. Um, it, it, it mobilizes support to isolate um, Pretoria, the apartheid regime, and bring pressure to bear on it, at the same time to force the white population of South Africa, whether through business boycott, whether through sport and cultural boycott, to open their eyes to how unpopular their system was. And it can work and it will work in the same way with Israel, with apartheid Israel. And, and especially since we see the BDS movement growing from strength to strength around the world. So it took 30 years in South Africa to build this up. The BDS movement following the South African BDS path uh, began in, in, in uh, 2005. That's 15, 16 years ago. It's, still, it's going great guns. And anybody who wishes to support the Palestinian cause for justice and get Israelis to understand that they must stop injustice and brutality and, and, and so on and the demolition of houses and, and, and et cetera, all these horrific things that are crimes internationally that their security will be when there's justice for everybody. Because when there's only democracy so-called, the whites here said they had democracy, just as Jews in Israel say we dem democratic, that's, that's absolutely nonsensical. Democracy applies inclusively to everybody, not excluding others. That's the parallel between apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel as well. 
Well, thank you, Ronnie. I mean, uh, it's our questions have actually taken uh, us to Palestine slightly earlier than I thought we'd do. But I, but in a way, I'm glad that they have because um, Steve O'Neill, he says, uh, isn't the principal goal of BDS to raise awareness of Palestinian issues? And I think what you've been saying bears out all, all that out. But I suppose the question um, could be for you, Ronnie, I mean, you have been uh, very supportive of the Palestinian cause, uh, and you will have seen that uh, in Britain, um, a, a number of Jewish socialists who have equally uh, spoken out um, uh, for the Palestinian cause and have made direct comparisons uh, with uh, apartheid um, and have, have been critical of Zionism have been um, taken uh, and, and suspended from the British Labour Party, for instance, um, on grounds of being anti-Semitic. Now, how do you deal with this? Because you've had this yourself. I think it was the, uh, I think it was the South African Jewish Report. They they alleged that that, that you had um, indulged in hate speech back in two thousand and six. Uh, that that went nowhere. But the fact that you know, as a, as a Jewish socialist, you have been very supportive of the Palestinian cause, and you have a uh, a critique. Um, how, 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 do, how do you react when people accuse you and others of being anti-Semitic when you're Jewish? It's absolutely vile. And not only calling those of us who stand for justice who happen to be Jews and say, not in our name, the oppression, the discrimination, the, 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 the brutal attacks and killings of Palestinians, not in our name, but it's non-Jews as well around the world. Um, who are anti-Semitic. I'm not talking about real anti-Semites who are filled with race hate and would inflict death on Jewish people and on black people. And we've seen this Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists in America, the, the National Front and so on in Britain and elsewhere, and now in Eastern Europe and other places. Um, so there are people like Jeremy Corbyn all his life. There, there, there's uh, people, you know, cultural people, uh, maestros of the movies like Ken Loach, uh, whose whole life has been based on anti-racism and not just against black people and brown people and Hispanics, but against anti-Semitic attacks on Jewish people. Uh, the Labourites, the communists, the socialists who stood in Cable Street with Jewish people, there's been that tradition in Britain. And we've seen the dreadful anti-Semitism out of the ranks of the Tory party and its offshoots. I've mentioned Boris Johnson. Have a look at his writings. But Lady Hodge and uh, Starmer and his deputy, they don't bother about the anti-Semitism that the Telegraph uh, and, and those Fleet Street, the yellow press have indulged in and, and right-wingers of the Tory party or, or the way the Board of Deputies has allied itself with right-wing racist Tory students in Oxford to prohibit, to seek to prohibit Ken Loach to come and speak to a university there on the cinema, on his brilliant humanistic films. And they went to cut him out with the Lady Hodges and, you know, that, all that ilk claiming that this is an anti-Semite. I actually made a statement and said, is the next step, when I came to 
in solidarity. We received the solidarity in the struggle against racism and injustice in South Africa. It's a two-way street. That's why we stand implacably with the Palestinian people, with those being oppressed all over the world, with the African-American people and so on, and, and with people within Britain, those socialists, those democratic people who stand for that. And I said, is the next step for the board of deputies and the likes of Lady Hodge, et cetera, um, to put Ken Loach's films on the bonfire, on the bonfire, and people will be astounded. What is he talking about? I go back to my mother, to my mother who said to the eight-year-old Ronnie, at the beatings of black people in Johannesburg City streets. It's not quite like the bonfires and the gas chambers of the Nazis, but Ronald, that's how it begins. And we've seen that poison, how it has started in Britain in the past and in, in the United States, France, Germany, Italy, around the world. And unless you take a forthright stand against it, you allow these people to take a finger and then a hand and then the whole body. And that's, that's the beginning of the fascist onslaught. And those people, and I'll say it, as I said, in, 90, in 2006, you made reference, Mark, to it wasn't just this pathetic little newspaper called the South African Jewish Report, which claims to stand for the Jewish community. There are Jews in this country who stand by the Palestinian people and are called anti-Semites, not just me. It was Helen Sussman, you know, this Jewish leader of an opposition party to the National Party through the, the years of apartheid, but she happened to be rather conservative. She would be against any form of, of armed resistance to apartheid or indeed of the boycott. Um, and she was absolutely steadfast in support of Israel over everything, Israel right or wrong. I condemned Israel in its attack on the Lebanon in 2006, when over 1,500 people, including nearly 300 children were incinerated in Israeli bombs and the country, was it, its infrastructure was pulverized. I used a term from a Jewish minister of agriculture in Israel in 1948, a guy called Aharon Sizzling. And when he heard that the Jewish Ergun and it was the Ergun, which was this military movement terrorist group, had carried out the massacre of 240 Palestinian men, women, children at Dair Yassin. He said, oh my God, now we are behaving like Nazis and my whole being is shaken. I quoted him. I was then attacked by Sussman and the Zionist Federation in South Africa, which is actually an agent for Israel in South Africa, as any Zionist Federation around the world is. They don't, they, 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 they quite outspoken that they're there about the support for Israel. Um, they attacked me 
and they took me to, oh, they said I was guilty of hate speech. I then went to a government body that the government had set up, um, a, a, a non-government body in effect, human rights body, and I said, here's my speech, is this hate speech? And they, they had a senior advocate looking through it and declared that this is not hate speech. Uh, this is, 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 is acceptable. This is political statement and it's based on fact. I want to fast forward from, from that 2006 to what's going on in Britain now. It's the same thing, but there's a pendulum has swung. Israel has fashioned a strategy based on this whole, whole diversion. It's a diversionary strategy of equating those who are critical of Israel as being anti-Semitic. Those who criticize Zionism, which is a political doctrine and the basis of, of Israel as a Zionist, Jewish state, which has taken, dispossessed the Palestinians of their land, carried out genocide, incremental, sorry, carried out um, ethnic cleansing, incremental genocide in the words of Ilan Pape, the very famous Israeli academic. Um, and and that, that's what it's, it's about, but they they are trying to conflate. And of course, we have Zionist mouthpieces from the Holocaust remembrance um, associations to the Zionist federations and lobbies from America, small one in South Africa, Germany, Argentina, Britain, and all over, who are part of this onslaught now. It's a reaction against BDS. It's a reaction against the world and it's moving. The International Criminal Court is be now beginning to say that we can have and we have the right to begin to investigate Israeli war crimes. They anti-Semitic, Netanyahu says. We know this too well in South Africa because as Ronnie was attacked as a 23-year-old who was simply saying we should have one man, we use that term, not one person today, you know, universal franchise, communism. They used the communist bogey in the exact same way that Israel and the Zionists use this diversionary strategy, a bogey of these are the anti-Semites. And they don't look at these anti-Semites who are supporting Israel from the backwards of America, including Trump, and including the, 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 the prime ministers of places like Hungary and elsewhere, who are absolute racists, anti-Semites. That's the way they are turning this. We must stand up to them. We have to be bold. We, we, we don't use hate speech. We have the moral high ground. We internationally have a weapon of the BDS. And as with South Africa, it reinforces the just struggle the just cause of South African black people struggling against apartheid, of Palestinians and increasing numbers of progressive-minded Jews, of Bet Salem and um, 
the Ilan Papis and others who stand with the Palestinians well, for the, a unitary state, non-racist state. As you're saying this, I'm 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 thinking that um, one of the effects of all of this, and and uh, we were talking earlier. I mean, people elsewhere in the world may not have heard of Margaret Hodge. She's a former Labour minister. Uh, She's a very visible face of what has been happening in Britain uh, around anti-Semitism. She went up to the Labour leader and said to him, to his face, that he was an anti-Semite and a racist. And this was... I think I, I sorry, Ronnie. Um, yeah, what yeah, I was I, saying is yeah. the internet connection was a little unstable. There probably uh, probably I'm a little unstable. People might say, but the thing is, um, Ronnie, what what I was saying is this: it it does have this effect when um, language is policed, when people are accused of the most outrageous uh, uh, things, and, and find it very difficult to defend themselves because they never thought from 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 a moment that they were guilty of being anti-Semitic. What it does mean, it means that the the criticism, the opposition uh, begins to, to die down to some of the worst things that Israel is doing. And one of the examples, again, is from Britain, possibly. The British Labour Party now is very, very quiet about uh, the, the Palestinian land, you know, land grabs in Palestine is very quiet about the vaccine program, which is seeing uh, all of the people in Israel being uh, uh, vaccinated. That's the plan there. But none of the five million Palestinians under Israeli occupation. It's quietens. It, it dull. It dulls the criticism. And I mean, did, what what can be done about this? Because it has cowed a lot of people. When you think that free speech in British universities is going to be policed, people can be accused of being anti-Semitic, can be threatened with losing their jobs if they make direct comparisons between apartheid Israel and apartheid South Africa. What can be done, do you think? Okay, I, I would just say that this isn't a new trend. The attack on freedom of expression, the attack on democracy, the attack on justice, people who stand for justice. We, we remember um, the, the, the unlamented Joe McCarthy and the witch hunts in America uh, after the Second World War. Um, and we've seen this happening in various countries. We see it again now, there's that upswing. And we need to look back then at the lessons from the rise of fascism in the 30s. And there was this rise, Mussolini, Hitler, Mosley, all over Europe and in North America, South America and so on. And people became paralyzed. People became frightened and intimidated. There was elements of that in South Africa as the black shirts here, similar kind of groups, also began to take to the streets. Um, we, that's the history of how, how Hitler comes to power within Germany itself after, you know, in 1933. So these are the signals and this is why we've seen, if we look at North America, the United States, how, thank goodness, there was this strong stand, not just within the centrist Democratic Party, but amongst progressives, amongst um, young people, 
Black Lives Matter, the Hispanics standing up and blocking the path as happened in Spain, non passaran to Franco. And of course, in that period, Nazism, fascism rather, was becoming so powerful that, that Franco came to power there. But the whole lesson was unity against this and breaking the development of a hegemony which they strive to, 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 to have, that control. We see the media playing this game. And Israel is very powerful and it's got the buy-in from evangelical Christians, particularly in North America. They outnumber the number of Jews who in the past were a Zionist block. I see from Dave Chappell a question, if I can just bring this yeah. in, who asked me why I think that more Jews are actually moving towards BDS. I mean, if you look at, at the United States and developments there, there has been that counter um, to the, 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 uh, the Zionist lobby and APEC and the, and, and the lobby in, in Congress. So there has been that shift. And with BDS becoming more powerful, so Israel had, had, had made the statement from its intelligence circles there that um, BDS should be regarded in Netanyahu's words as a strategic threat, you know, at the level of armed activists and, and so on. Um, and this is where the drivers come in and it plays into the ruling class in Britain, particularly, and across Europe, as it did with Trump. And I'm not saying that Biden's going to change. The Democratic Party, they have been very pro-Israel, but it plays into that. So they, they've, they've actually, at this, pro, at this particular moment, the current has become very powerful, not because people on the ground are joining in, but those, and it's not Jews, let me say this, you know, this is anti-Semitism, where people say, oh, the Jews are controlling money and the media and so on. You know, the big capitalists aren't Jews. Of course, there's some Jews who are very big capitalists, but they're smaller in number. And that whole media, the Western mainstream media, unlike yours and the work you do, we know what they what the whole, the whole current is, and how Labour now, not in fear of Jeremy Corbyn because of his internationalism and because of, of the left wing of, of Labour being pro-justice for the Palestinians, not anti-Jewish or anti-Israel. Um, so they now have attacked Corbyn together this Zionist grouping, the Lady Hodges, the, the Mossad, the, the, the Israeli embassy, Al Jazeera exposed this, and of course, the, the Israel impulse. With the Tory party, with the capitalist elite and their newspapers in Britain, and they are the ones making the row and the racket. And it looks as though um, they're winning. You've got to stand up to them. You've got to fight and be strong. There must be solidarity with Corbyn, with Ken Loach, with the others who are being by a McCarthy, Joe McCarthy witch hunt, driven 
out of the Labour Party and the Labour Party under Starmer and the way he has caved into this and this treachery of him and his deputy and that clique with this Lady Hodge, despicable, disgusting people. Well, that's very strong stuff, Ronnie. And uh, there are a lot of people who are agreeing with you here. Um, well said, Ronnie. Dave Chappell, solidarity will win in the end. Uh, Fahid Abuakal says, Ronnie, thanks, thanks, thanks for your stand for justice for Palestinians. Uh, Gerald George says, some very good points, Ronnie. You're doing an outstanding sterling service. Uh, yeah, please, please, uh, uh, please carry on. I mean, what does strike me, Ronnie, is that um, a lot of people... They who are not particularly interested in politics, they don't follow things. Um, very rarely do they sort of see something that they think, oh, that's pretty bad. They, they in, in terms of Britain and the United States and other countries where this anti-Semitism thing has been thrown around, people just feel it's anti-Semitism is a bad thing. They may not necessarily understand what it is. It's a bad thing. It's and, and those people, anybody associated with claims around it is, is tarnished by it. Whether, whether, and, and, and this is a, a very, very damaging thing, as you've been saying. So I suppose what has changed a lot of minds just recently, and I was in conversation with somebody from Israel today uh, who was unaware of the fact that, uh, uh, that actually vaccines are being used as a political weapon by the Israeli government. And she had said to me, well, the Israeli government has promised that vaccines will go to Palestinians. And I said, but that's not the case. They're not going there. And uh, the only place they are going are to places like the Czech Republic, Guatemala and Honduras, because Prime Minister Netanyahu wants those countries to recognise Jerusalem as the capital. Now, when people can see very, very clearly how um, something as precious as a vaccine to save and prevent, uh, save lives and prevent deep illnesses being used as a political weapon like this, it really does wake them up. So, Listening to what you're saying and the and people that need to stand up to this, um, that's one of those big issues. You can see this wakening people up, I think. Uh, yeah, but what's your thing about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, these people who I've referred to uh, with the media, this powerful, massive, powerful um, media, that's the noise. They say we make the noise. <laughs> you know, we, we are, um, we have smaller resources infinitely. It's like the Palestinian struggle against Israel. Um, the resources are so unequal. And those with the power, the control of the planet, they make the noise from governments to that media of of the elites, um, the 1%, and let me again say, if we talk about a 1% ruling the world, I'll say of that 1%, 0.1% or 0.01% are Jewish. So when we talk this way, because <laughs> I know my opponents, when we say the wealthy, they then say, oh, that's anti-Semitic because people regard Jews as having the money. I mean, that's tosh. That's the diversion. But it's the noise created by this, this, um, the, the elites who run the world and the governments who represent them. 
And why is the West supportive of Israel? Because it's been the gendarme, the policeman, from the time Churchill and Balfour, early as that, Churchill once had said what's good for the Jewish people, when the Zionists were talking about wanting a homeland in Palestine, what's good for them is good for the British Empire. What's good for Israel now is good for the American, the United States Empire, the Middle East, the control. They've had a breakthrough, as we know, with this so-called normalization, with these, these actually treacherous, um, feudalist Arab states who, for business reasons and pressure from, from Trump, and it's going to continue with the new administration, which I'm pleased is there for sure, and will do some progressive things and good things domestically. I'm not so sure about internationally. Mm. But um, th this is the way it's going. And that's why together, as we said, South Africa, our people will never give in to, to oppression. They will resist by whatever means is necessary. Well, and well, we ask the world to support them. And that's the case with the Palestinians. Why it's incumbent on progressive people who believe in humanity, justice, equality, to side with the Palestinians in order, and I say this to my Jewish Zionist friends, that the change is going to give you security into the future without coming to providing justice and equality to Palestinians, you will never be able to sleep comfortably, which is with case what changed business and apartheid-minded white people in South Africa in the end. Ronnie, uh, unfortunately, we're drawing uh, to a close. Sadly, we've only got a couple more minutes, but a couple of messages here. Isaac Kirk Davidoff in uh, New York says, 100% Ronnie. Michael DeMarco, I don't know where Michael is. He says, spot on, Ronnie. I suppose the, my final question to you, and it sums up from what others have been saying too, you've had this extraordinary life you, and experience, and you've been at the heart of the struggle against uh, apartheid in South Africa. Um, in many ways, everything that you've done has been the personification of that struggle. And so you've seen it, and you've seen the end result. You saw apartheid collapse. Uh, you saw a democracy. Seeing what has happened in South Africa is the same possible for Palestine. Do you think that Israelis will sit down with Palestinians and finally agree that the only solution is a South African style solution, a one state secular solution? Do you think that's possible? Do you think we're going to see it? Yeah, a absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I'm 82, going 83. Um, I, I'm not saying it's going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> I would love to happen. You ask Tariq Ali next week. I had a discussion with him recently because he once, about 10 years ago, and he's such a wonderful, outstanding, I mean, icon. And he had said the situation's bleak for the Palestinians. He said that about 10 years ago. He talks reality. But I said to him, you know, Tariq, it is bleak. And given what's happened now, this normalization with Arab states, etc. cetera. Um, however, belief in the justice of a cause. And when people unite, which is what has to happen with the Palestinians, they'll have their Mandela's and their leadership. They've had outstanding and have outstanding people. I am so impressed by young Palestinians, women, men, youngsters. Look at 10, 12, 15-year-olds standing up 
against Israeli tanks and bombs within Gaza and, and the occupied territories and within Israel itself. The thing the Palestinians have, they call it Samut, which is what we had, this absolute dedication and courage never to give in. They believe in their cause. They are unconquerable. There's no way that they will ever give that up. And it is a question, the challenge to unite, to find the methods in, 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 in uh, connection with the international community, that fusion is what happened with South Africa. Remember then, you, you're old enough to know this, uh, Mark, that there were times when people said up to the late 80s that there'll never be a change in South Africa because apartheid's got the resources, it's powerful, it's too strong, the Western nations support it, but we made them change. And, and that formula is the, res the resistance, the struggle, political mass underground, using methods which, which, which people in their own country have to decide on, um, and the unity together with international solidarity. I would say that it's impossible for an enclave, a settlement, a colonial settlement just based on an inclusivity, um, excluding all others and just based on a, a, a Jewish group. And that kind of apartheid to survive indefinitely and not to sweep them into the sea. We proved to the whites in South Africa, it's against the system. We want to change the system. It's not sweeping you into the sea. Netanyahu and the Zionists tried to make out, put those words into the mouths of Palestinians, who some might use it and some in history have, but overall they don't. And they see the sense and the way forward. So the Palestinians, the answer is with them. They will win and they will win over. Jewish people, a minority who will really stand with them, but as with white South Africa, in the end, they'll see it's impossible. And the only way to feel secure and to have business that can function and, and so on is in a unitary state. It's the only way forward. Ronnie, you said that you were going to be passionate and you most <laughs> certainly have. <laughs> uh, you, you've got everybody going here and we want this to go out all over the world for people to, to, to see this interview and to listen to what you have to say. Your wisdom, your hope and your passion has been absolutely fantastic. And we've really thoroughly enjoyed having you here. And we want to have you back. Uh, Anytime. I've, I've, thank I've you very much, Ronnie. Um, and just leaves me to say uh, thank you to everybody who's made this happen to Omar, to, uh, to Kieran, to, Alex, to Mac, everybody at Palestine Deep Dive, thank you. Uh, and until next time, in fact, Ronnie has already given him his cue when we're going to be joined on March the 10th by the one and only Tariq Ali. Until then, it's goodbye from me here in Britain and goodbye from Ronnie in South Africa. Thank you. <laughs>